Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And joining us today, we have special guest, author Rowan Pierce. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Tell us how 2021 has been for you. We've, we've started asking that because, yeah. you yeah. know, <laughs> years from now, people will be like, oh, this was pandemic life. <laughs> yeah. I, I really appreciate your attempts to like archive for the future in real time. I like it. Um, okay. I'm not going to lie. 2021 has been great for me. Uh, it's, I mean, there's like the devastation that comes from living in a moment when people are suffering. That is the sort of existential horror of that. But in terms of like my personal, just me life, I'm an introvert who enjoys being at home. And I already worked from home before the pandemic and my girlfriend lives right around the corner and my sister lives in Philadelphia as well. And so I'm like, I'm extremely lucky to be surrounded by many of the people who are close to me and to be sort of like dispositionally uh, okay with being by myself, with not hanging out. Um, Yeah. So I've just been kind of doing my thing and I've gained like 18 new pandemic hobbies (laughs) like what you have to tell us all right i mean okay bird watching nice Um, okay relaxing i feel it yes uh refinishing furniture um i've just gotten so are you like going out to vintage places and getting stuff and fixing it or what mostly i um trash pick so you're a picker yeah i mean i live in philadelphia (laughs) and so there are like tons and tons of stuff that people are getting rid of all the time. And I will like yeah. cruise around and find stuff that people put out for trash day. Also there's um, like in university city where Penn and Drexel and the, a bunch of colleges are students when they move out of the dorms, drop, just throwing just, stuff out. Yeah, yeah. They put all their stuff on the, on the street. And it's like, those of us who know uh, it's just a bunch of people like, going up and down the streets where students live and, and picking. I mean, these are like nice pieces of furniture that they've only used for two years and then they are throwing away. So yeah, I, I love cruising around and I have a, I, I have a big thing about waste. I really, really hate waste. And so a lot of my hobbies I think come from like trying to take or like wanting to take things that people are getting rid of or that could be thrown away and like turning them into other things. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of that, um, I love like swap swaps. So I have a lot of friends who live in the neighborhood and we always do like clothing swaps or kitchenware swaps or like there's always a text thread of people being like, I'm getting rid of my Belgian waffle maker. Who wants it? And then the next day someone else is. Wow. Um, so yeah, oh, I love awesome. I love grabbing that stuff and like fixing it up and passing it on to other people. And That is so cool. And you know, know what? I feel like, okay, this is a thing that I have because I just read a book yesterday that was very small town big city is bad mm-hmm. and that's a th- that's a thing that i have but um <laughs> just hearing that it's like this is it shows that even in a city like philadelphia you can have that small quote unquote small town community, community. feel yeah. like that is so cool oh totally and that's it's like something i don't think i would hear if i was like in a small town Aww. it's just like throw it out throw it out but like i love yeah. that yeah that well, like, happy. you know i live i used to live in like I've always lived in one bedroom, like small one bedroom apartments. And the place that I moved actually right before the pandemic is 
um, you know, like a house on a street. It's only a few blocks away from my old apartment, but it feels like a different world because instead of like only having one room to put all my stuff in and like desperately trying not to acquire anything, I suddenly have all this space so I can like take things in and mess with them and put them back out again. Mm -hmm. But it also means that I have neighbors who like, I actually know who they are. And I have neighbors where I'm like, oh, you know, I feel like Miss Wanda was looking for a thing like this the other day. And so I'll just sometimes go. And the next time I see one of my neighbors be like, I, were you looking for a thing? Cause I just found the thing. And do you want the thing? And they're like, yeah, I want the thing. And it's, it's really very like, I do think people who don't live in cities sometimes have this idea of cities that they're so impersonal and it's impossible to get to know people. And I find that, I, I mean, I've lived in both kind of like smaller towns and big cities and I I it's different but I feel like you make community where you are we'll so are you ready to do some icebreakers so speaking of picking up new hobbies and things um according to your website when not writing one thing you can be found doing is cooking overly elaborate meals what's the last one that you made yeah I I love cooking and baking um I think the last well, you know, I've been I've been less elaborate of late because I've developed 18 new hobbies that have taken up some time. But yeah. um, <laughs> the last thing I've I've been super into pesto this week because I, I have a garden out back and I grow a bunch of herbs and I'm trying to like use them all up before August murders them. Um, because in Philadelphia, because we know you don't like waste, you don't like, don't waste. like waste. I also hate heat, so it's a big problem for my garden. But yeah, um, yeah. So I've been I've been um, making all these pestos, and you know, traditionally pestos made with basil, but um, I have like oregano and a bunch of mint and thyme and like all these herbs. So I've been experimenting with different kinds of herbed pestos. Um, so I just made this pesto that was uh, pistachios and mint. And it was so good. So I um I roasted some potatoes and I love the method of like boiling little potatoes until they're just uh just edible and then like frying them up. And so I like fried up these potatoes and got some fresh burrata and put I drizzled the like mint and pistachio pesto over it and put the burrata on it so it sort of melted and like the the outside mozzarella part broke open and the liquid cheese oozed out and then put an egg on top liquid cheese liquid cheese hello so good i love burrata yeah and then i fried egg on top and um it was pretty good i mean that's not super elaborate are these like are these like random creations? You're like, let me see if these things go together. Like, yeah. where does that come from? Because I'm like a Pinterest chef who yeah. fails miserably. I could never come up with something like that. Oh, well, you know, I feel like I, I've always really loved cooking and I've never been much of a recipe person because I do really like experimenting, which means that sometimes I've had massive failures also, which, you know, is sort of the risk of it. But um, yeah, I feel like I I know what kinds of flavors I like together and every now and then when I'm out at a, like a new restaurant, not lately, obviously, but a, a new restaurant or like see someone have a new flavor combination that I wouldn't have thought of, I sort of file it away. And then when I'm, when I'm looking for things to cook, I look at what I have and I'm like, oh, I wonder like what, what if these things went together? Uh, and it's just experimentation, which I really, really enjoy. I love it. Awesome. (laughs) I'm I am such a bad chef. I can't cook. I married a chef, thank God. (laughs) Well, not not tech. He's not actually one, but he loves to cook. Yeah. 
So that's all we will not start. You just need one in in every family, I think. That's right. That's right. (laughs) What's one thing you are nostalgic? Oh my gosh. So I don't know if y'all are um, horror fans at all. Yes. Yeah. So I just watched (laughs) on Netflix, the Fear Street trilogy, which is based on the R.L. Stein Fear Street books from like the late 80s, I guess, to late 90s. And the first one is set in 1994. And I was watching it and I was like, I loved 1994. Great, great. Yeah. Um, the mid 90s, like the music of the mid 90s, the the kind of um, the grunge vibe. The grunge. I'm deeply yeah. nostalgic for it. It was, let's see, I was, I was 12. So I was like, just, I was super into like grunge and alternative music. Um, for for anyone who was bat mitzvahed, I'll tell you my bat mitzvah. Um, I really didn't want to have a bat mitzvah. My, it was important to my parents, so I went along with it. Um, but you know, there's like a party that you get to invite your friends to, and my party was at this. It was in a barn, but one of those barns that you can rent out for events. Um, and it was cute, and we had a DJ, and the DJ was playing records because it was 1994, and he was a DJ. Um, and my friends and I, I had made a playlist of like all the music that I liked for this DJ. And when he put on Nine Inch Nails, all my friends started like moshing on in the barn. <laughs> and the DJ came over and was like, hey, y'all are skipping my records. Like you have to stop because you're you're ruining my records because this barn floor is shaking. And of course, we didn't care because we were assholes. But um, yes, yeah, so that time period, I'm deeply nostalgic for like people still thought I'm like oh my gosh the things the things that I did in barns in like the late 90s right (laughs) it was a great time that would have been my first year of high school and I remember my grandmother bought me this crushed purple velvet dress and she was so thrilled that I was going to be wearing a dress right and I show up wearing my Doc Martens that's (laughs) a Doc Martens from the buckle right (laughs) She just gave me this look like that's not what we were going for. Yeah. I love it. I loved the the dress over jeans, oh, the yeah. boots, fashion. Yes. And, and I think, oh. I mean, this is going to make me sound 1 million years old, but I also feel like what I missed from that time period was there was technology. So it, it wasn't like there was no TV or directions or whatever, but without uh, smartphones, you know, every day after middle school, I would like get on the bus, pay my 25 cents or whatever, mm-hmm. get on the bus, go downtown. I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, go downtown. And I, my friends and I would like, well, we would do drugs, but then we would wander from like, from store to store and <laughs> buy flannels and like learn about new bands and go into music yes. stores and listen to music. And there was no, it was like, you yes. found what you found and you got to discover things, That's right. it, but through experience. And I really, I am super nostalgic for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the the experience of it. Like, I don't know. There's just something about like I used to come home and like TRL came on at like three thirty, and I'm like, yep. okay, Carson, who's coming on? Yeah. And like <laughs> Friday night, it was a thing. You go to Blockbuster and you yes. either your movie's in or it's not, and you're kind of bummed. But it's like there's all these other options, and you get the candy and the pickles and the soda, and it's like an experience that like yep. I think is just really really missed out on now. Like, yeah. and back then. Sarah and I talk about it all the time like 
your favorite celebrity or favorite author, like you didn't have so much access to them. Like they felt so far away. Mm -hmm. And while I think it's cool that we have so much access now at the same time, like that allure, I think is missing a little bit. Yeah, I really agree. Kids nowadays can just slide into a DM like, hey, I love this movie. (laughs) It's so so weird for me because even though I um, have other author friends, I mean, I think of them as my friends more than I think of them as authors. Like I would still never, it would never occur to me to like a famous author's book and message them. It would never yeah. occur to me. I would be like, I guess I can yeah. write them a fan letter and get a stamp and and mail it, which I also wouldn't do. But And then I have to remind myself, yeah. people are always like, oh no, if you love an author's books, you have to tell them, which I know very well is true, but it still never occurs to me because I grew up in this moment where it was like, you you talked about that stuff with your friends, but you didn't get to like, yeah. t- unless you went to a concert and like stood in line to meet yeah. Dave Grohl or whatever, you didn't get to tell someone that you liked them. It's yeah, different yeah. time. Um, on a recent put a finger down if TikTok video you posted, you did so for having read a book over 50 times. What's a book you love to reread? I have, I have um maybe like, a little set, three or four books that I've definitely read over 50 times. The Outsiders by Essie Hinton, which I think I probably read 50 times by the time I was like 14. I, uh, oh my gosh. a huge wow. fan of that series. Well, and again, it was, it was, uh, the late eighties and early nineties. So it was like, you just went to your local library and they had the books they had. And so you read the same ones over and over again. Um, True. but yeah, that, that the Outsiders, but also that whole series, I read 1 million times. Um, also from that a similar time period, there's this series called The Secret Circle by L.J. Smith. She also wrote The Vampire yes. Diaries, which she's more famous for, although I think it's far inferior to The Secret Circle. Um, so The Secret <laughs> Circle series, I will never stop talking about how much I love these books. They're like, you know, set in high school, like young adult um, books about a coven of witches, uh, high school aged witches. And it there is something about them. They're, they're written in the late 80s or early 90s. They're super dated. There's no like queer representation. Everyone's white. There's no progressive politics. So it's like, I, sh- I would hate them if I read them now or not hate, but you know, I, if I read them now, I'd be like, okay, these old mm-hmm. ass books. But because I read them when I was like 11 or 12, the magic in that, like the, the, the sense of magic, I I read, I borrowed them from a friend and I remember reading them for the first time. Like I started the first book when it was time to go to bed on a Friday night and I read the whole trilogy, stayed up all night, finished it at like seven in the morning before anyone was awake. And I remember taking the bus downtown because I was so wired with like the feeling of magic that I couldn't possibly go to sleep. And I sat there like (laughs) staring at the sky. I don't even know for an hour and then went home because I couldn't bear to like go to sleep and lose that feeling. So I've read that series one million times um I need that experience of like being in a book days like I just I can't right I know I, I, I mean I, I still recommend it even though you're not 12 um but I don't know that it will have the same magic but it's still delightful they did make the CW made one extremely ill-advised season based on like a ghost written sequel to the series it is mm-hmm. truly abominable and I do not recommend the series at all but when it when I learned that it was being made I was so excited and then it was terrible um but yeah oh yeah Secret Circle series we see a lot of adaptations of mm-hmm. like from that era like what do you think it is about I mean yeah. we lived it so I can just say like it was fucking great but like you <laughs> know for, I think I, me and my husband we have this argument all the time because like 
I remember when Babysitter's Club came out, which I have not read. Sarah loves them. I was a Goosebump kid, so I didn't read them like that. Yeah. But like, he was like, how do you feel about this? And I think like they redid like all that or something like that. And I was like, I want him to leave stuff alone. And he's yeah. like, but we have kids. Like my daughter is obsessed with stuff from the 90s. He's like, but your age group is going to watch it for the nostalgia. And like mm-hmm. their era, like now is obsessed with that eight that era for some reason so i don't know what do you think yeah. like what is it about it that like people love to adapt that stuff now i think so i mean i think i think you're right well they say that the cycle trends is it 20 or 30 years so like for us now like for kids now they're obsessed with the 90s the way in the 90s we were obsessed with the 60s um like i remember in the 90s okay. watching uh like the movie versions of um, like stuff at like Woodstock and there were all there was all this stuff that was coming back from the 60s in the 90s um, so I feel like it's that same mm. increment my honestly I my um, my take on it is very like Marxist materialist which is that the, the people who were kids in the 90s like us are finally executives at movie production houses yes. and have the money and the clout <clears throat> to make whatever they want. And so they're like, you know what I liked when I was 13 years old? <laughs> and, then, and then they're like, yeah, I can do it. I can make it happen. Um, and it's really like, at this point, the 90s count as historical fiction. Like it is a discreet yeah. and in the distance time period mm-hmm. that when I was watching like 90, 1994, the Fear Street 1994, I remember a song came on and I was like, I really think this song came out in 1995. And I checked and I, it did. It was the um, garbage. <laughs> I'm only happy when it rains. And I, yes. I'm really bad at remembering dates generally, but I only remember that that album coming out in 1995 because I remember like mm-hmm. when I got it and what <laughs> class I was yeah. in. Um, and so I, I had this real like... <laughs> super old person moment of being like that's not the correct time period it's an anachronism <laughs> but it really is like a historical time period that people would have to be like let me do research onto what costuming would be because like what what thing came out in 1993 yeah. versus 1994 yeah. so it, it has yeah. sort of like concretized into an historical period that I think is so interesting because the, it seems like it's taking less and less time as we move forward mm-hmm. for those generations to concretize because of like technology mm-hmm. speeding things up and the ability of trends to move quickly and be communicated twi- quickly so it's like by 2050 will it be a 10 year cycle or like yeah. I know. you know yeah. so it's just it's really interesting and I do think that it has a lot to do with like the materialism of who gets to have the power to create things at what moment it makes sense because you know when i was a kid the music we listened to in the car was the stuff my parents listened to so that's what i know is that 50s 60s 70s music but now like brie you're a mom with a 12 year old you were a 90s kid so you're exposing her to the music foo fighters right (laughs) thank you yeah exactly like you know good music (laughs) they're like mom can we listen to something besides everlong please (laughs) (laughs) i feel like such a a weasel like a poser y'all i have like no idea what music comes out today because i oh god no perpetually stuck on like the 90s era music it's just so, it's so classic well and I think it makes Absolutely. so much sense like I'm what because I had the same experience as you did Sarah where like I was listening to my parents you know I grew up listening to like 60s and 70s rock and folk music because that's what yeah. my parents always listen to and I would listen to the music of the time on the radio 
Whereas now, like Mm -hmm. nobody, I'm not listening to anybody else's music except mine. So I don't have those outer influences. And I have, I have 39 years of music to listen to already. So I'm much less interested in keeping up with the trends because we have like digital ways of listening to music. I I only listen to the radio if I'm like driving 10 minutes and don't want to bother starting a podcast or my own music. So I just have like so many fewer channels coming in of music. And every night, like my girlfriend is a musician and so she is very up on like new music and but but she also doesn't li- really listen to pop music so much so it's like weird electronica from the UK like <laughs> horror movie soundtrack classical pop, you know, yeah, yeah. it's like very specific <laughs> and there's this really there's this ability to like niche down now I think that's really different like I think about people who grew up knowing 60s and 70s music because our parents listened to it and I'm like there were only a hundred bands like we all know the same music there wasn't like you're not no. gonna find people being like well I found I have this 60s band that nobody really heard of. Uh, I mean, of yeah. course, there were bands that didn't get big, but you know what I mean? Like, we all know who those mm-hmm. bands were. And we probably share like 90% overlap on the things that we would know. Whereas now there are 100 million bands and we have, except for like pop hits, we probably have very little overlap person to person to person. So there's just so much more media now. Like, how could you be literate at all of it, you know? Oh, yeah. No. Do you feel like, I mean, radio was huge. I mean, I remember becoming a obsessed with 80s music because in the summer before sixth grade like we had a boombox and the radio station during lunchtime would do like lunchtime 80s and I remember hearing Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears and I was obsessed it's still my favorite song of all time but I'm like, I get sad because like you said, I get in I get in the car. I don't even think to put on the radio. Mm-hmm. And Sarah and I were chatting recently. She was like, why was I today years old when I realized my car didn't, didn't have, have a CD, CD player? player. <laughs> I was like, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but I get sad. I'm like, man, like, because I, I listen to a lot of like old time radio on podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, but like, like old like radio mysteries and stuff. And I'm like, man, radio is not big like it used to be because now we can just like stream. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I feel so sad I'm like man this is like an important part of like pop culture that when it's gone we may not even realize it went away and then one day you're gonna get in the car and want to turn on the radio and it's not there I think that's so interesting and I I wonder I was actually just talking to my girlfriend about this about the music industry because you know my my main experience is like the publishing industry and hers is the music industry and she has a new album coming out in the fall and I was and, and she was talking about sort of like the production time and like pressing records and making the things and I was like you just can't make it as a musician anymore where you're distributing your own music or trying to get radio play or whatever right and she was explaining like the model of it to me and what we were both realizing was that records have really come back in the last five or six years Mm -hmm. because of this like diffuse digital landscape that we're living in you know radio is not big anymore for music it's they're playing like the top 40 or whatever but there's very little else that's the music that radio is doing and people are missing it, I think. And so records have had a huge comeback. I didn't know this until she told me, but cassette tapes are back. Like they oh, are. I hope. I no want a cassette way. tape. She has an album <laughs> coming out and they have, they were like, okay, so the other thing you have to do is like, make sure you finalize the design for the cassette tape. So like it will be coming out and it will be a brand new cassette tape as well. And I was realizing that that's the same thing that happened in the publishing industry where like audio, or I mean, uh, eBooks got huge. And then in the last, um, maybe like five years, physical paperbacks, 
or hardcovers have come back with a vengeance because of like book talk and bookstagram because people are like oh we lost something like we lost the ability to have this physical object and suddenly it gets a new kind of cachet and people want it again sort of in the same way that like people started collecting records again in the 90s because they were like oh you know CDs they're so flimsy and they break and like records records are where it's at and I think there's been that that resurgence too Mm -hmm. and like radio has sort of moved to be podcasts and so I do wonder if like in five or 10 years there will be a huge resurgence of like and suddenly people will rediscover like college radio and it will become a whole thing again because it does seem like the technology like the material technology has such a lot to do with nostalgia itself so people who like read paperbacks or listened to albums there's like not a tactile referent when it's just on your computer or on your phone and so then people are like wait something's missing I want this and then they sort of like drive the market to reproduce this thing that had gone away for a while Mm -hmm. and then it's just like a trend itself right like a material trend and I wonder how much of it is especially like what we've been living through this year and last year and maybe every generation has their thing but like that wanting to return to simpler times you know like for me like I struggled a lot like why you know like like being when the pandemic first happened it's like okay you can still go outside like you know what life was like before social media and all of this stuff like you used to be outside and it doesn't involve necessarily interacting with other people but just like going for a walk and I was like why are you struggling right now (laughs) you know like people are always like oh you need to take a social media break and I'm like you know what life was like before social media was a thing Like, why are you Mm -hmm. even having this conversation right now? And I just, I wonder, like, Sarah and I were talking about a month ago, and she's like, for some reason, picking up a physical book feels nostalgic for me. And I'm like, I feel that on a whole other level. Yeah, I was craving, like, I love my e-reader. Pry it out of my my cold, dead hands kind of an idea. But there's just something about having a physical book. And finally, our libraries opened up here. And I went last week, and I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, oh my god. You know, like... (laughs) Yeah, I feel I feel it as well. I um I was really late to the e-reader game. Like when my first book was published, I didn't even own an e-reader. So they sent me the file and I was like, I don't know what I was supposed to do with this. How do I like, do that? Yeah. Um, but then once I once I got into it, I was like, this is amazing. Because I used to be that person who packed, you know, like 15 books for a vacation because you never know what you're going to want to read. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a miracle creation. Um, And now just I think in the last like year or so, also I lived in very small apartments and I was moving often and that was, you know, it's like moving a literal tree. And so it was so great to not buy books and now I'm like oh I don't want to read on an e-reader it's so nice to get to hold a physical book in my hand and turn the pages and fall asleep with it on my face and you wake up smelling that nice paper (laughs) smell and uh yeah and I really it like I I had a maybe like a 10-year period where I was excited by the the like immateriality of books because it was like objects can be really burdensome so if you can get the content without the object it feels freeing but that same thing that felt freeing eventually like looped back around and I was like oh no it feels it feels like I'm missing something and so now I'm back on paperback books and so like see you later I will spend all my money in one year but (laughs) (laughs) um one more TikTok related question you mentioned in one that you're working on a rom-com you were inspired to write while watching the movie The Holiday can you share with listeners what it's about yeah totally um so so I saw that movie, The Holiday. Have you guys seen it? Okay. Yes. Yeah, I feel I like there's it. a real a real discount. I thought it was like a really big movie. And so I would tell people like, yeah, I got this idea watching The Holiday. And they're like, what is that? Um, <laughs> that was me up until okay. like three years ago. And my, one of my friends was like, 
watch the freaking yeah. movie. I was like, oh, this I is have good. so many feelings about the movie and uh, would happily discuss them forever. But um, so the, the, the movie is about two women who are in really different places in their lives, but both of them have recently been sort of heartbroken. And so they want to leave at Christmas. Uh, they want to leave their town and get away from their heartbreak. And so they end up swapping houses for the holiday season. And of course, like have brand new adventures and loves and whatever in their new places. And I was watching this. I, I have no memory, honestly. Uh, I think I had the idea and it reminded me of the holiday. And then I was like, oh, I should watch that movie again. Because when I put it on, I actually remembered very little about it. Um, it's a fairly charming movie, although I have deep issues with the casting of Jack Black and that entire role, which yeah, that- really? issues <laughs> it's so different seeing him like as a love interest yeah, I don't know okay you I have will. to tell us tell us your thoughts okay so my well I I have um nothing against Jack Black and I love the idea of love interests not always being the sort of like dashing leading man slick type yeah Mostly it's that sure. I don't think Kate Winslet's uh story should have been a romance because she meets her next door neighbor who was like an old time Hollywood screenwriter and his story is so much more interesting and she's helping him and they're working toward a goal and I think the romance feels very tacked on and like just going for quirk factor Mm -hmm. and I really don't like it also uh I'm so uncharmed by the like awkward funny uh that's just not my type at all and so when he is Mm -hmm. I don't know plus I'm just like Kate Winslet is one of the most beautiful uh glamorous women on the planet and to see her like fake laughing at Jack Black it's just pathetic anyway um (laughs) so I was uh I was watching it and had this idea for a a book that was a house swap romance and I I was like oh you know I've never read a double romance before I've read like women's fiction you know books that are kind of like classified as women's fiction where it's like multiple siblings having their different relationships or whatever but I really liked the idea and I thought it would be super fun to write essentially like a double romance that was happening at once where the two romances could sort of like interact but not be at this like be, be in two different places and so yeah. um I'm writing this book I, I called it in my mind the holiday because it's two like it's a lesbian couple and a gay couple and I the holiday it. I feel pretty sure that will not be the title that the publisher decides to go with <laughs> even though I would be delighted um but yeah so it's um it is uh one of the storylines is Greta who is a uh, she's like a few years out of college and she lives on this small island off the coast of Maine. Uh, it's like really small town. Think kind of like Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls style mm-hmm. small town. Like quirky neighbors, but everyone knows each other. And like you really, it's hard to like change as a person. Um, and she has a really big, very overly invested family who at the beginning of the book are just like getting in her shit. And she wants to take off and leave uh, she's Jewish so for Hanukkah because um, she just cannot deal with like the holidays with her family. But she has a house full of plants. And so she can't just leave because they would die. And then we have, uh, and so that's in Maine. And then we have Truman, who's the character, the other character. He lives in New Orleans. And at the very beginning of his story, he goes to bring his boyfriend a Christmas gift and finds that his boyfriend has a whole other life, like has a husband and a kid and has been lying to him this whole time. And so he wants to get out of town because he's like mortified and thinks that all this person's friends have like known that he was kind of like a side piece and he feels horrible but he has a dog and so he can't just leave 
Um, and because it's the holidays, it's not like you can just get a bunch of people to come hang out at your house. So they both have a mutual friend um, who they tell this to. And the mutual friend is like, interesting. I have an idea. So they swap <laughs> houses for the holidays. Uh, Greta goes to New Orleans. Truman goes to Owl Island, Maine. And they basically like are spending the month of December in each other's spaces. And Truman is trying to like recover from this heartbreak and ends up falling in love with Ash, who owns the local flower shop uh, on Owl Island. And Greta ends up falling in love with this woman, Karis, who does uh, ghost tours in New Orleans and also has, because of course, course. and also has to two... now, please. <laughs> no, we need the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really fun. I'm having so much fun writing it. I also like, I lived in New Orleans for a little while. And so it's super fun to write something set there. And I also love Maine. And so I, I wanted to pick places that I thought were really different from one another um, but I also love holiday yeah. books mm -hmm. so much. And so I was like, oh, it's, I love that it could be around the holidays. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. And it's, I like to write. I mean, I think there's often humor in what I write, but they're definitely not usually comedies. And so writing a rom-com, I think what's cool is that um, it's a bigger book. Like it's longer, there's more space. So I love writing secondary characters. And so I'm having a lot of fun writing like uh, Karis's housemates, two housemates, are big characters in her story and like they're, they have lots to teach and they've inspired one of my newest hobbies, which is beekeeping. I really not want to keep bees now. <laughs> no I love it. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm working on it and I, it should be coming out. I think like winter, not this winter, but the next holiday season. Um, but yeah, I'm having nice. so much fun writing it. So one of the things you touched on that I want to ask about before we like go on yeah. to the next question is like you mm -hmm. it's a rom-com and I was I was part of a clubhouse chat a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Listeners like 10 years from now if this podcast still exists are going to be like what's clubhouse? <laughs> but <laughs> I was in that we were talking about what makes a romantic comedy and I'm like well for me it's like situational humor like I love when you're reading one and like it may not even intentionally be funny but the way that everything is set up is funny and then there's some authors that just nail the comedic aspect mm -hmm. so I'm like if you're not funny like it could be awful so as a writer how would you define what a romantic yeah. comedy is I feel like you can name a thousand films right off the bat rom-com rom-com but like I feel like nailing it in the world of romance yeah. novels can be hard. Yeah. So okay. what do you think? I'm going to confess something to you that I should definitely not say out loud, but I'm saying it anyway, because I love We're all friends. It. We're all friends here. I've never <laughs> read one. I haven't read one. I, okay. I've seen a million rom-coms. And when I started thinking about this story, I told my agent that I wanted to write it. And she was like, that's definitely a rom-com more than like a romance romance. And I was like, great. I don't care what that means. And I don't, whatever, I'm going to write it. However, I'm going to write it. Not in like a I mean, I, that kind of sounds like a an assholeish thing to say, but mostly it was like I didn't want to read a bunch of them and decide that like the pattern of what they are is what I had to do. So I'm actually I'm writing mm -hmm. the first draft now. I'm probably like a little over halfway done. And when I I always like to take a break between writing the first draft and editing before I even send it to an editor. So I'm gonna read some after I finish the first draft and see if there's like things that I need to tweak, whatever, whatever. Um, and the reason why is that like, I think people's idea of humor is so particular, so specific. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that like, I, I actually, I ha experience extreme secondhand mortification 
with comedy a lot. Like I can't stand stand up comedy. I hate it so much. Not because I like think that it's an like I, it's cool and all for for people who do it, but when people say things that are clearly supposed to be funny and they don't, they aren't funny to me. I feel so embarrassed. They don't land, yeah. And it, I can't mm-hmm. like it. It fills me with this like fire of mortification for them. Um, and the same with reading books. I think when when I read a book and someone is clearly trying to be funny and it's not funny, it pulls me out of the story so fast. And so I think for me, like the thing about a rom-com is exactly what you said. It's about situational humor and it's about like, it's about knowing the character well enough that you understand that things can be funny even if nothing happens. So like in a movie... I'm thinking of um, like classic kind of early 2000s rom-coms. You learn a lot about the character. Like usually it's the female protagonist. You learn a lot about her in the first five or 10 minutes of the movie. Like you learn a bunch of her backstory. You learn what is the thing that she finds most romantic or like her biggest barrier to love. So maybe she's in love with, I don't know, like her boss at work or whatever. And she loves X, Y, or Z thing about him. And her best friend is like, you have it so bad. If this person asked you to like mop his floor, you would do it. And then five minutes later, you cut to her at work. And the boss is like, okay, so team, this is all great. Here's the thing. We really need the floor mop. There's nothing funny about that line. There's nothing funny about the friend being like, you would mop his floor. But the the juxtaposition of those two things, because you know something about the character going in, it's like, she doesn't even need to say anything. The camera just closes up on her face and she's like, and you know, you know, and it's, and somehow it's very funny, (laughs) but not like laugh out loud funny. It's like funny and sad and romantic or like romancy, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that that to me, like that's just about good character development. So I really think that the, the thing that makes a good romantic comedy to me is just being really good at character development and then having an eye for like, what are the circumstances that will pull out bits of the character that you've already um, established. And so I think it's like the romance part doesn't have to be different than a romance necessarily, but I think there's also more because it's so situational. There's like, you need to give their, give more options, more um, potential for the comedy to come out. So like more characters, quirky characters, uh, bigger scenes, a bigger cast of characters, maybe. Um, and for me, like, I'm kind of a sarcastic person. And so that's not not like mean sarcasm, but dry, dry sarcasm, I guess. And so that's mm-hmm. my style of humor. And so I feel like the more characters that I develop in a book, the more chance there is for those little like zings of what would you call it? Like lines of communication all happening at once that kind of create this funny feeling. Yeah. So that is my terrible confession that I am writing in a genre that I have never read, but I feel okay about it because I think that the genre of book is, is so based on the genre of film. And I have seen 1 million of those that I'm kind of like, Okay about it. Yeah, yeah. Like I yeah. got this. <laughs> I can do this. So tell us how you became a romance reader. You know, I had never read romance until the end of grad school. I didn't grow up reading it. Um, I didn't. I, I really had no knowledge of it. Actually, um, I mean, I knew it existed, of course, but it's not like I. I thought it was bad or whatever. It was just sort of not on my radar at all. I grew up like huge, like fantasy and sci-fi and kind of like witches and vampires kind of reader. And then when I was in college, like I was an I I was an English major, and then I went and I got my PhD in literature. So I was reading like serious canonical literature. Um, <laughs> and when I was in grad school, I like reading has always been my escape. 
but because I was reading all day for school, I suddenly didn't want to be reading like heavy shit at night. And so I went back and started rereading yeah. all of the like young adult books that I'd loved when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And that sort of got me into, there was a whole boom in young adult literature about the time that I was in grad school, which was like the middle, like 20, 2005 to 12 or whatever. So there was this huge, huge boom in young adult literature, which also included like young adult romance. Um, and I started reading all of that. And then randomly one day, and I also always liked mysteries. So one day, because of like the books that I was ordering on Amazon, here's my shout out to the Amazon algorithm, which changed my life, even though we love, <laughs> I love um, because I'd been reading, I guess, some like young adult mysteries with romance. And as a queer person, I've always loved to read like queer stories. Amazon recommended me um, a Josh Lanyon mystery. And I ordered it because it sounded great. And I was like, oh, and like a queer detective character. That's cool. And I read it and I didn't even know that there was like, that the genre of queer literature, I mean, queer romance existed at that time. I had no idea. And I read this book and, and since it was a series, I read the series and I was like, wait, and there's, it's like super romantic. That's cool. And I, I know it sounds absurd because I'm a human being living in the world, but I was like, oh, right there's like a whole genre of romance. And now that I realize there's like queer romance, interesting. Mm-hmm. And it was like a light bulb <laughs> yeah. went off in my head. And I started ordering like a couple other romances, queer romances. And this is like, I didn't have an e-reader. I didn't, you know, I this is like ordering full on paperbacks sight unseen from amazon.com. And uh, I was, I was so delighted by them. And I think because I was, like my work was so serious. I loved the escapism of reading romance. I was totally single at the time and had no interest in dating anyone myself. I was just like focused on my dissertation. And so getting to like vicariously live a romance through reading the books, since I definitely like was not doing it in my own life, um, was so, it was really sweet. And it was like, I realized reading them that if I thought back about all my favorite books my whole life, they always, or not always, but they often had like a romantic subplot that I hadn't noticed was one of the reasons that I liked them. But of course, like once I started reading romance, I was like, oh, you've always really liked the interpersonal dynamic of romance. You just like never really thought about it as romance because it was like a romance within a fantasy series, a romance within historical fiction. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, looking back, I could I could really see that there was a through line that I'd always liked romance. I just kind of hadn't recognized it as that. And so then, yeah, I was just I, I was super in it. Nerd question. What were you studying for your PhD? Um, I was studying <laughs> uh, American literature from the 1890s to the 1960s. And I was writing about this idea that I that I called gothic realism which was looking at like realist, like books that were categorized as realist fiction and making an argument that they actually used gothic tropes and gothic language to suggest that like people who were unmodern were monstrous. And unmodern in that context meant like people who were not urban, not straight, not white, not upper class. And so I had like different chapters about the like different kinds of books that were sort of like classing or casting those characters as being monstrous or scary or whatever. And really it was like they were pulling from pulling gothic words or tropes and aligning these populations with the gothic as opposed to realism 
in an argument about modernity. Thanks. I love it. I also loved it. I'm- if you want to publish a collection of essays, then there you yeah. go. Yeah. I'm a huge nerd. I loved grad school so much. Like I am, I am the nerdiest version, which is like, I didn't go on to, like I left academia and I, people are like, oh, don't you feel like you wasted seven years of your life? Cause you don't, you aren't using your degree. And I was like, I would have stayed in grad school forever if someone had let me like I would gladly do another program I loved being a student I loved learning stuff I didn't want to like I didn't like the the professor part because I don't like people and grading papers is the worst <laughs> thing in the entire universe but <coughs> yeah what was your journey into becoming published oh my gosh I owe it entirely to my friend Ani actually um I wrote my first book kind of for her as a joke or not a joke but like a I didn't know I was writing a book I was just writing her these little like bits that became my first book. And when I finished it, um, she was like, oh, okay, so now you have to send it to get published. And I, I was like, I was just writing this for you. I'm not, that was not on my agenda. And she was like, come on, just try. And so I had, I sent the book off and I actually forgot about it because I was, I never thought anyone would want to publish it. Um, and when they said they did, I was like, oh crap. Okay. Well, I guess, I'll just do that. That's neat. And that's, <laughs> and that, that was like the beginning of it. I, I, it never occurred to me to do that. And I'm so intensely grateful that my friend made me do it. Okay. So we're going to talk the lights okay. on Knockbridge lane, but first another, like, I mean, I swear like, oh. like the coolest person ever. So before we start talking about that, you are the co-host or a co-host of the Dear yeah. Romance Writer podcast. So can you talk to a, like, l- let listeners know what it's about, all the things. I think it's oh. so cool what you guys are doing. Thank but you. you talk yeah. About I am having so much fun doing it. Um, so Dear Romance Writer is an advice podcast. I am a huge advice column podcast etc fan I've always really liked them like Dear Abby etc um I think partly because I'm bossy and I really think I'm right a lot and so I like to tell people what to do but you're known for like talk yeah, your face I mean, <laughs> communicate yeah, your it's, face at this point, it's, I, it's like I didn't even realize I was saying it that much until Avery started making so much fun of me I should say Avery Flynn and, and Zio Axelrod are my amazing co-hosts um, and yeah, Zio started making, fu- not making fun in a mean way, but in a like, do what Rowan always says and talk about it. And I was like, I mean, I thought that was pretty generic <laughs> advice. I didn't realize that uh, it, it needed to be said. But um, yeah, I, I really, I am a huge advocate for communication. And one of the things that I feel like is so clear to me when I listen to other advice podcasts or read advice columns, and that I know just from being a person with like friends in the world is that it is so easy to see what other people should do and so hard to do it for yourself. And so I think like, (laughs) I really value listening to advice podcasts or reading advice columns because it's like, sometimes you have to see the advice given about a situation that resembles yours, but isn't to you in order to be like, oh, of course, of course this person is treating me badly. So I shouldn't give them my time. Whereas, and that feels really clear and, and clean Whereas for yourself, you have all this stuff wrapped up in that person that you can't distance yourself enough to to summarize it that way. And so I think one of the things I've enjoyed the most about doing the podcast is getting messages from people being like, I listened to this episode and thank you so much for saying this thing that you all said, because this isn't my exact problem, but it kind of relates to a problem that I have. And it was really cool to hear that advice because I know that I actually need to take it, but I kind of 
couldn't come up with it myself. And I know that's true for me. Like it is very easy for me to tell someone else to do something. And then I go to have my own life and I'm like, well, I certainly can't do that one thing that will definitely work because it's hard and scary and I don't want to. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the podcast. Uh, We, we have episodes every other week, although we hope that we can go to every week eventually. And it's, um, we have it as a podcast that people can listen to. You can also watch it on YouTube if that's more your thing. Um, and we take letters. So like if you go to dearromancewriter.com, we have a form where you can submit an anonymous letter and we are having so much fun doing it. Uh, it's it's really a delight to do something that's not writing based because all three of us are writers. And so we, we write most of the day. And so then we get on the, the thing and we're like, chat, 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 chat. We will make sure that we put a link to where you all can, if any listeners, if you want to send in a letter, we'll yeah, leave yeah, we would love to hear your letters. No, nothing too small or too big. We like them all. Let's chat about Garnet Run Book Three: The Lights on Knoxbridge Lane, the first gay category romance. Congratulations! Being yes. that this is part of your Garnet Run series, can you take us through how it came to be in the special edition line for Harlem? Yeah, totally. Um, it's, it's interesting to me because while this is going to be the first, like, on page, there have been other category romance romances in Harlequin's lines that have had, like, a bisexual woman in a relationship with a man on the page. Um, so I don't want people to think that it's, like, the first queer characters or anything. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's the first on page queer romance that Harlequin lines have, um, are publishing. And Harlequin's late to the game, though, right? So there are, like, every other big five publisher or line has multiple mm-hmm. queer romances. Um, and the the way it happened was I wrote the first two books for Karina and Karina does a bunch of queer romances. And Carrie, who's my amazing, lovely editor, had um, chatted with the, the editor at Special Editions about my first book with them, Better Than People, just because she thought she would like it. And that editor, uh, there was like a little wires cross moment where the editor thought that it was like a submitted manuscript that hadn't been picked up yet. And so she was like, I want that book. I want, I, that's cute. I want it. So she actually wanted to publish better wow. than people. And Carrie was like, oh, sorry. No, I mean, we already signed these two books, uh, but you can have the third one if you, if, if Rowan wants to continue the series. <laughs> and so then they contacted me and were like, do you want to keep writing the series? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I would love to keep writing the series. And they were like, do you want to publish it with special editions? And I was like, I do not know what that is. Oh my gosh. Um, and, <laughs> oh my gosh. and so my, my Carrie, my editor was like, and here's the truth is like, I, as someone who didn't grow up reading romance, I didn't grow up reading Harlequin. And so I am not educated about like what the different lines mean, what the, <clears throat> what the difference is between like the personality types kind of of the different lines, which now I know each one has its own sort of personality and things that you can expect, but I didn't know that. Um, So I said, yes, sure. I, because I honestly didn't care like which line the series was in as long as they promised me that it would still be marketed as a series. And so when I said, yes, I had no idea that it was going to be the first queer romance that Harlequin lines had put out. Uh, They didn't, I like, yeah, I didn't know that. And when, and when they said that, when the editor of special editions told me that, to be honest, my first response was like, well, I don't know if I want my book to be the first 
queer romance you guys have done because do you even know how to market them like that's if that's not what you do <laughs> yeah. why would I want my book to like be a yeah. guinea pig um but they were mm-hmm. incredibly generous and extremely dedicated to like learning from Karina specifically about how to market gay books and I really really appreciated that and and I really like I really believe that it is well past time for them to be doing this and I'm super honored to now that I know what the hell is going on uh I'm very honored to have my book be the one that is their first but also it's like my book is their first but it's not certainly not the first in the world of publishing like there have been queer books in big five for years so I just I want to be really careful Mm -hmm. that this is this is a an a first within Harlequin, but not a you know, yes. global first in yeah. any way. Of course, of course. Yeah. I remember when Sarah and I saw it, like, I feel like we were both oh. crying and she tells her husband and she messages me and she's like, Garrett's like, it's about time. Yeah. Garrett's like, yeah, it's about time. <laughs> like, it just totally nonchalant, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> I think it's really... Um, the sense that I get, like, again, uh, please understand, I have no knowledge of the inner workings of the Harlequin machine. But the sense that I get is like that they are genuinely and legitimately excited to be moving mm-hmm. into this. And so my main goal with this book is like, I mean, and I think and I, w- I mean, I hoped that this wasn't offensive when I said it on Twitter. But like, my main goal with this book is I want it to sell well. Obviously, I always want my books to sell well, but like I want this book to sell really well because I do not want there to be any excuse for people not for like every other line not to acquire books from like about queer characters from queer people. I want them, I want every single line to have queer books in it because of course they all should. And so I'm like pushing this Mm -hmm. book really hard, um, really harder than I push my books usually because this is a book that's going to an audience that doesn't know me, that doesn't usually read queer romance. For a lot of readers of special editions, they will never have read a queer romance before. I'm sure a lot of them won't like it, which is totally fine. But also I know that there will be some pushback in that corner and so I want to push equally hard in the positive because I want the book to be a success so that Harlequin is like well this first one that we did succeeded so of course now we're gonna throw the doors open and we're gonna like publish queer books of every single stripe I want them to publish trans romance I want them to publish queer romance by own voices authors I want them to publish Mm -hmm. intersectional romance I like my mission with this book is to use it as a wedge to pry those doors open for other people because in the end like it doesn't really matter which book Mm -hmm. was the first it matters that there was a first and that that means that then there can be a second and a third and a hundredth and a thousandth and so I yeah I'm I'm pushing this one really hard because I I want to do everything in my power to contribute to it being successful so that that door remains open. Mm -hmm. I had asked Sarah yesterday um I was asking I'm like what do you think it is like special editions specifically like why is that the series that we're seeing you know this in because prior to your book we read Sarah Taino's book which is coming out soon and the main character her and her family are Puerto Rican and there's all types of identities and sexualities and it's beautiful and I'm like yo special edition is like stepping it up Mm -hmm. and really bringing it and I'm so excited and Sarah's like that series it could be your neighbors it could be the people down the street it could be people you work Mm -hmm. with she's like and I think that it's you know it we had that conversation of like this is a smart 
series to have these stories in because it is so everyday. It could be, yep. you know, it it's so reflective of real life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm so excited for the direction that the series is going in. And for anybody that has any doubts, the book is fucking <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. Amazing. So. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really smart, so, um, okay. a really smart like read on it. And I'm so excited to be a part of that line precisely because I think they're not saying like, this is an outlier or this is a um, a new experience. They're just popping it in the line. Yeah. It's just a part yeah. of the series, uh, which I think is great. So the story is a romance between single dad, Adam, and neighbor across the street, Wes, and Adam's daughter, Gus, which we call her that. Her real name is August. <laughs> I feel like we're friends. Yeah. Um, made the story fun and it's truly what she's, it's her who connected the two in the mm-hmm. first place. When you began writing the story, did you already have Gus's character in mind or did she come to you as you're writing of it yeah I already had Gus's character in mind um I've never written a book like a romance with a kid in it before none of my characters have ever had kids I do not have kids I frankly have no interest in children whatsoever um and I never thought that I would write a character that had a kid um but my sister actually had and kids in romance can be tricky. Like they can be kids can be very tricky in romance. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they are tricky. It's also something. It's not something that I enjoy reading very much. So I just haven't had that much exposure to it. Although, <coughs> excuse me, there have been a few that I've read that like when they did it well, I was like, oh, that's really cute. Um, but I think often they mm-hmm. they yeah, it's not my it's not my life, nor is it my my uh, personal taste as a reader. And so I didn't really think that I would be doing it. But my sister had a kid. Um, my sister and her wife like have a two-year-old now and I adore this child with my whole heart and of course like can't spend more than an hour with them before I'm like oh my god children thank god my life is the way it is um but (laughs) which like I mean I seriously this is like no no um not that I dislike children I'm just constitutionally unsuited to be a parent Mm -hmm. in any way um but watching my sister's kid I suddenly started being like oh you know maybe I would love to write like a single parent romance because I feel like I, I don't know. I, I don't know if other authors are this are the same as this. I assume some people are where like every new experience you have in your own life, it feels exciting to like work through that by writing about it. And so okay. I, I was excited to try to write a single parent character and write a kid. But of course uh, the kid had to be older because they had to be able to talk and be the impetus for this relationship. Mm-hmm. And it might amuse you to know that I know so little about children that in the first draft of the book that I sent my editor, Gus was four, but it was written the same, like basically the same <laughs> as it is now. And my editor wrote back and was like, Gus is incredibly charming. As a parent, I have to tell you that every single reader will be so horrified that this child crosses the street by herself at the age of four um, and you clearly know nothing about children or like eight children's ages. Um, and so, it, so I aged got up to be the appropriate age for like how I wanted to write her. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to have like a kid who was a nerd about stuff that you don't often see little girls being nerdy mm-hmm. about. So Gus loves science and like yeah. lizards and yeah. spiders and bugs and all the stuff. Um, and I really liked the idea that Adam, her father, is kind of scared of all the things that she likes. Because I've heard many, I mean, most of my friends have kids, and I've heard many of them be like, 
oh my God, my kid's entering the age where they're like obsessed with doing this activity and I hate it so much. Or like they love this movie and I can't stand it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, Gus Gus loves lizards and snakes and spiders. And her dad, Adam, is like a super pure soul who's like, oh, I'm so glad that you love all these things. Science is great. Get that thing away from me. I can't stand it at all. (laughs) Yeah, so I was excited to write, like, a, a weirdo, cute little quirky kid. She was adorable. Thank you. <laughs> um, Wes has wonderful intentions with all the scientific research he's been doing behind closed doors. Can you share with us where the inspiration for his character came from? And was there any research that went into writing specifically the things he's passionate about? Yeah, um, so Wes is a scientist, a biologist who's fascinated by bioluminescence and is working to like create sources of bioluminescent energy that can change the way we generally use energy. Um, This is something that not specifically the bioluminescent part, but like changing the way we use energy is something that I'm really passionate about and uh, think a lot about. And so um, the idea of, of having him be fascinated by bioluminescence was mostly just because I was like researching what are the new, like, where are we with alternate energy sources? And of course we are, we are in hell basically and killing the planet and it's going to die in like five seconds. Um, but yeah, but I came across in, <clears throat> in doing that. I love nerdy science shit. So I was just like looking at some stuff and I came across this, Um, I want to say it was in Switzerland, but I don't remember now this experiment that they had done with bioluminescent light and using it as a sort of like short term lighting source in, in caves and like other spaces where it would naturally occur, like taking it from those spaces and using it in similar spaces. And I knew that Wes was going to be a kind of like nerdy inventor type. Um, but I didn't know necessarily what I wanted him to be inventing. And obviously I myself am not an inventor, so it's not like I just have these things lying around. And so I, when I put the two together, I was like, oh yeah, he, he studies bioluminescence and he does all these like experiments in his own, his house is very much a sort of, uh, an inventor's house. Like he does all these experiments and he has all the stuff lying around that he tries to make into things with his experiments. Um, so once I realized he was going to do that, I did start researching it. I even talk about picking up, uh, hobbies during the pandemic. I even thought about ordering some of the like algae and stuff and an aquarium so that I could do the experiment myself. Um, and in the end it was just like too expensive, so I didn't do it, but I really wanted to be able to like be correct in my science. Um, so I found these amazing YouTube videos where you can really watch people do some of the things that he does in the book, including there's a thing, um, this is not spoilery, but there's a, a thing that he's doing where he's trying to splice bioluminescent genes into plants so that you can get like glowing plant life. <clears throat> and this is actually possible. Like you can Google it and watch uh, a YouTube video of someone actually uh, combining the material of these things. Uh, it's really amazing. And it's like, yeah. And so I really wanted his purpose to be all about finding ways that he could, with his inventions, change the, the reliance on energy. So like one of his passions for it is like, there are lots of 
urban spaces, especially, and I definitely have experienced this living in a city, like there are neighborhoods, like particularly neighborhoods with that are like lower socioeconomic neighborhoods where the infrastructure of the city does not care. They, they write off these entire neighborhoods and they don't bother maintaining streetlights, mm. ambient lighting, et cetera, which then of course, like furthers the problem because if you don't have any light in a neighborhood, then the second the sun sets, it's basically like totally dark, which makes it not safe. It means that people don't feel safe walking around at night. It means that people need to arm themselves to feel safe. And so it really exacerbates the problem. And so one of the things that Wes is looking into is like, is there a way to create sustainable bioluminescent light so that these places in cities that sort of get uh, get underserved by the infrastructure can have an alternate light source that doesn't cost the same amount of money, that doesn't need to be tapped into the same grid as the city or maintained by the city proper. Um, and similarly, he wants to see what its uses are in rural spaces where like the light pollution, sorry, I'm like really being a nerd right now, but That's like, okay. <laughs> there's a huge problem where light pollution in, in rural spaces messes with the, the wildlife and like the biorhythms of the wildlife and it drives them out of these spaces and that's how you get like i mean obviously so does development land development etc but like often it's the light that causes deer to run into the streets or causes mm -hmm. animals to like not be able to see cars they're blinded by car lights or they've been looking at light pollution and so they don't see that the road is lighter um, and it just like messes up when they're awake and when they're asleep. And so you get like deer wandering onto the road in the middle of the day, uh, which shouldn't be happening. And so Wes wants to see like, can we use bioluminescent plant life or like sustainable bioluminescence in rural spaces so that people are not with their light pollution, like ruining the world for the animals that they're cohabitating with. Um, so I was really like, as someone who both lives in a city and loves nature, I was really taken by this idea that he might be able to come up with something that would be a solution, both for folks in urban areas and in rural areas, which is something that usually, usually is kind of one or the other for these sorts of infrastructural changes. So we love romances set during oh, the holidays. Too. What inspired the choice to set Adam and Wes's story during the Christmas Dude, season? I would set every single one of my books during a holiday <laughs> yes. if I had the chance. I love the holidays so much. Literally every single book would be uh, like Christmas, Hanukkah, or Halloween if I had the choice. Nice. I just love them. Um well, so I wanted this book to be kind of like a like a holiday movie, like a holiday romance. That's what I mm -hmm. in my head I was like I I love watching like holiday movies, but they're usually terrible. <clears throat> and so I I was like, "Oh, I want to write a book that would feel like watching one, but that I would actually like." Um and the premise of the book, the reason it's called The Lights on Knockbridge Lane, is that Gus and Adam have moved back to Garnet Run after um, Adam has gotten divorced. And they're living in this new place that Gus doesn't really know. And she's feeling kind of bummed. And so Adam wants her to have like a beautiful, uh, fun Christmas. And he says, like, what's one thing that I could do to make you have a great holiday, even without your dad, your other dad, without your friends. <clears throat> and Gus, as as a, many a child might, was like, I want our house to have the most lights in the entire world. And so throughout the book, 
Adam is trying to make that dream come true for her and trying to like get lights and put them on the house. But of course they're actually really expensive and the amount that you need to cover an entire house. I really did look this up and it was like $8,000 or something worth of, worth of lights. And it was super wild. Um, as someone who is Jewish and has never put up Christmas lights, I was shocked to my very core at the amount of money that apparently my neighbors are spending on, on Christmas lights. But um, yeah, it's, it's real. So uh, yeah, I wanted it to be a holiday story because I, I guess I feel like, especially with a kid in the picture, there is this deep mm-hmm. magic that exists that children have access to that adults are just sort of trying to get back to for the whole rest of our lives. And like I said, so I'm Jewish. I, I never grew up celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah doesn't have really the same like performativity that Christmas does in culture. Like you don't really put up a bunch of lights. I mean, my, my mom hangs like icicle lights cause she thinks they're pretty, but it's not a thing. Like there's no tree, there's no um, media around it. And so I, I always loved Christmas stuff as a kid because I felt left out of it. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, so many like Jewish people that I know, we all like Christmas. And I think it's this combination of like, it seems kind of magical, but also we have no negative feelings about it. Whereas like people who grew up celebrating Christmas, often I think they're like, yeah, I like Christmas, but also it means this with my family. And I have this memory of like these awful Christmases. So I feel like I get the best of both worlds, which is like, I get to enjoy Christmas stuff, but I have no angst or familial drama around it. And so I was like, what is the most magical thing in the world? Oh, obviously uh, a child getting to like make a wish for the holidays and her parent trying to make it come true. And I just, Yeah. yeah. And so, and I also, because Wes has the bioluminescent light and they have these lights, I wanted it to be just this sort of like, beautifully lit magical uh warmth in the winter warmth in the darkness kind of like glowy thing glow fest a glow fest uh adam is an amazing single dad who has his daughter's back uh and he's trying to make her happy while also still slightly angry and grieving the loss of his previous relationship was there anything about adam's character you hoped would resonate with readers yeah i think that um one of the things that I really wanted to do with Adam's character, it's been incredibly inspirational to me watching my sister and her wife be, be parents. Um, I think they're amazing parents. And like I said, I know nothing about raising children whatsoever, but I've certainly like watched people be parents in the world and often been pretty um, horrified at the way they do it. And I think one thing that I've respected so much about my sister and her wife as parents is that they never pretend that they know everything. They're like open Mm -hmm. and want to learn from their kid as much as they can. And I, I don't have the patience for it. So it's amazing to watch, but I feel like what I wanted to do with Adam was have a character who is still himself. Like being a father isn't his whole personality because I think it's so important that just because you have like a kid or a demanding job or whatever, like you are still a person who, who needs to take care of yourself and doesn't put everything into uh, what your child wants. So I wanted him to still be a person with faults, with his own anger, with his own sadness, 
but I also wanted him to not know everything. Like I didn't want him to be someone <clears throat> who was the, the kind of like hierarchical source of all knowledge. And then his daughter was beneath him, which is one of the reasons why I gave her all these interests that he didn't share because I wanted Gus to be able to be the expert in things. And I wanted her to be able to teach him. And I wanted him to, of course he has things to teach her. He is a grown up, but like, I really liked the idea that um, you could be an amazing parent and, and not have it be because you are omniscient or you know, always know the answer. And I think it's really valuable yeah. for parents to admit when they don't know things, to show curiosity for the interests of their kids. And there's a scene where Adam, like Gus asks Adam a question and he doesn't know the answer. And so he says, let's look it up together. And that's the thing that they do is like, whenever she asks a question, he doesn't know. He doesn't give her some bullshit answer. He doesn't pretend that he knows. His ego is not invested in like the supremacy mm -hmm. of knowledge. It's invested in learning. And I thought that that was just a really beautiful yeah. model that I would want, like if I were a kid, I would want, and I was very lucky to have parents who were like very excited about knowledge um, and like learning together. So yeah, I, I really, I think those are the two things is like, that you're still a person, even when you're a parent and you still have all your own needs and desires and your own bullshit. And that like, it's not about what you know, it's about being excited to learn. Um, Wes is so cool, but chooses to remain hidden, which we learn why as the yeah. story progresses. It's Gus and Adam who are the inspiration for him to really step outside during daylight a lot more, <laughs> to step outside of his comfort zone in general. Was there anything about his character you hoped resonated with Yeah, readers? so I, I won't say the backstory of Wes that um, that you learn why he doesn't come outside because I, I think that's a little bit too spoilery. But yeah, so Wes is, he's not precisely agoraphobic, but he really, really avoids people whenever possible and rarely leaves his house. He has everything delivered. He doesn't go out during the day very much. He tries to only go out at night when he won't be seen or when he won't have to interact with people. And he is pretty extreme about like what his boundaries are. Um, and one thing that I really respect or like want people to in, enjoy or I guess respect about Wes is like there are so many different ways to be a be a person in the world and Wes like by the end of the book is not mysteriously or suddenly cured of his fears he's not suddenly like oh sure I have no problem going outside now it's a little better he he learns that like there are some things that are just worth it worth feeling uncomfortable enough to experience, but he, he, there isn't some, some magical change that happens. Um, and even though he has this limitation, it's a limitation that serves him. So like he enjoys being inside and kind of like super hyper focusing on his work and in doing that has created something amazing that other people can enjoy. He, kind of expands that bubble to reach to Gus and Adam's house. So he loves spending time at their house. But I think that he, like his experience in the world makes him a very sensitive and understanding person to other people's quirks, limitations, uh, fascinations. Um, like he is a non-judgmental person. And I think that 
one of my favorite things about him or that I would love for people to respect about him is like kind of similar to Adam actually that like uh, being, being generous and assuming that there are reasons for why other people do the things they do, I think is actually much more important than like trying to understand. And I, I, I think that I feel like that sounds controversial when I say it out loud, but it's like, of course, understanding is amazing. But if you're someone who like, you have to understand why someone does something before you're willing to grant them the grace to do it. I'm not about that. I think that actually the grace comes first, like deciding that other people probably know what they need better than you do is step one. And then if they invite you in and you get to understand why they need what they need, that's a gift. And I think that with, with Wes, I really wanted to create this character who was like, okay, I don't necessarily like know why you need this, why you like this movie, why you feel the way you feel, but I'm here for it. I'm here to support you. And if I get to learn the reasons why later, I will consider that a gift. Does that make sense? So we have to know, will River have their own story? Mm. Oh my gosh, I really hope so. So River, for anyone who hasn't read the series, um, is appears first in book two. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, first in book, well, a, a little ghost of them appears in book one, although you don't know it's them, but it appears in book two and is a like a supporting character in this book, in book three. Um, I would love to write River's story. I think... Well, I don't know. Uh, okay, I'll just say it. I would. I might write a short for River. I don't think that they're not book four. Book four is not River's story. Um, but I do have the chance to write like some shorter things for like Harlequin free reads and stuff. And I very much want to write River's story. Yeah. Yes. They're such okay. a doll. We'll take that. We'll take it. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Okay, so sure. some writer questions. All right, you sit down to begin working on your current work in progress, set the scene. So I feel like we kind of hit this already, but early bird or night owl? When do you feel you most know, productive? You know, I am a night owl for my life, but I'm actually an early bird for writing. Um, I really like to write. Okay. The, I really like writing to be the first thing that I do in my day before a lot intrudes on my brain. I am very like... I don't know if I get distracted and, and like scattered, it's very hard for me to pull back together. And so, uh, yeah, I like to write first thing in the morning and then like save all my other things for after. So <clears throat> I don't even check my email or like look at the internet at all before I start writing. I just like, I pull up my work in progress. I set my timer and I start writing because any distraction I find very like blustering. Are you a plotter or a pantser? <sighs> this is very hard. I think I'm a, what's the in-between one? A plantser? Plant, I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like don't care about plot very much if I'm being completely honest. Um, if I like characters as a reader, I mean, I would, I don't care what they're doing. Like I would happily, if I love the characters, I would read about them like, wandering down an abandoned train track or opening a restaurant or like, I really don't care. I'm much more mm -hmm. interested in character than I am in plot. So when I, so I do plan um, in that, like, I want to make sure that the plot, the emotional arc is really tight. I want to make sure that like psychologically everything makes sense. Um, but I don't, I don't plot. I don't plan out every scene 
because usually the scenes are like whatever is in service of getting to the next emotional beat. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I do do is, like I said before, anytime I'm like obsessed with something or fascinated by it, I want to write it into my work in progress. Um, So like in this book, in the the Holiday, whatever it will be called, I made this character, Veronica, a beekeeper because I was, I have been become recently fascinated by bees. And then, and Gus has a beekeeper hat on in the lights on that oh, big bridge lane that she got from the estate sale. Oh my sale. God, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Oh. <laughs> I'm just, the more that we've chatted with you, I'm like, I see so much of her in there, the estate sale and like your love of picking. Yep, yep. I was like, I'm seeing, I'm oh seeing my God. the And also, okay. I mean, I go to estate sales like every Saturday now that the oh. world is a little bit open again. No, no joke. Yep. It's like an obsession. Um, oh my God, I can't believe, I totally forgot about that. That is fucking amazing. Thank you for pointing that out to me. <laughs> oh, it all comes together. Um, yeah, but like I wrote that character to be a beekeeper and I knew that I wanted this one scene where Greta got to go to the community garden in New Orleans to see the bees. But then once I started writing that scene, I was like, oh, well I did research. So I know how you, I know how you filter and and purify honey. I know how you render the wax and turn it into candles. I blah, 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 blah. So because I had that, I knew that from my weird obsessions, I then, it became an entire chapter where they do these things and in the background of like doing all this stuff with the honey and the bees, they're talking about like their lives and you learn backstory and you learn about Greta's relationship and feelings for Karis. And then I just realized because of like one bit of dialogue in that thing, I realized like a thing that I'm going to put in the epilogue of the book that, so it's like the, the plot kind of builds out of the scenes, which is, I think, very a, a very pantser instinct, but I plot out the sort of like psychological and emotional arcs, which I think is more of a plotter instinct. So I'm like a character logical okay. plotter and a and a plot pantser. If that makes sense, you do, I do what, what you I want. want. I mean, right? it totally works. It's right? working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if it's a project you've already been working on, do you reread over the previous day's work or are you kind of already familiar and you just jump right in? I jump right in. So what I do is, and this is like, it's interesting because this was, has been my method. It was my method of writing my dissertation all through like in grad school as well. So it's like, even though it's writing very different things, I, I know what works for me, which is at the end of my writing for the day, I write notes, like two or three notes to myself about what I'm going to write the next day. Cause it's easier to like, it almost feels like you're already in the middle of writing. If you can just look at the notes to know what's going to happen next. Um, and I, and I always try to never stop at the end of like a, a scene when I don't know what's going to happen next. Cause then I'm leaving myself like a hard bit of work for the next day and I want to start seamlessly. So sometimes I will, like if I'm writing to the end of a chapter one day, I'll write the first two sentences of the next chapter before I stop writing so that the next day when I open the file, it's like I'm already in the middle and I just have to keep going, which I find like uh, kind of eases my way in. So do you write it like, because I know some authors don't, but you write it like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, because I know some authors will jump around from scene to scene. And then put it no, all together. I can't even imagine doing that because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I'm really writing, like building the character yes. and the emotional arcs, 
I think if I were more of a plotter, I could maybe do that because I'd be like, yeah. oh, this is the part where like she's feeling X, Y, or Z, but I don't know that. Mm-hmm. Also things, I mean, even the stuff that I do plot changes radically. So maybe I'm even less of a plotter than I thought. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I always write in order, but in this book, in, in the holiday, which I'm just going to call it that now, um, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I hope that that's what it stays. Right? Oh my saying. God. <laughs> From your lips to God's ear, I, I want know? it so much. <laughs> Um, the, uh, because it's a, it's two different romances. I wrote the first like five or six chapters in order alternating between the two stories. But then once they had, had switched houses, I realized that I had to write each one through on its own mm. in order to make, like, I couldn't just go back and forth. Cause it was like writing two books, one chapter of two of one book okay. and then two chapters of another book. And my brain, it like did my brain and I couldn't deal with it. So I did write through all of all of um, Truman and Ash's romance up to like the dark night of the soul moment. Mm-hmm. And now I've gone back and I'm writing all of Greta and Karis's story through to that point because then they interconnect again. Okay. Um, so this is actually the first time that I'm I'm writing each story in order but I will then later enter, I will put the chapters where they go based on what's happening. Sure. And I, um, yeah, I like left myself a week at the end of, before my, my book is due to my editor to do that. And I'm actually really looking forward to it. Cause I think like one of my favorite things about, um, about books that are set in two different places is, is like enjoying the resonances that they have between the two places mm-hmm. And I can't wait to put it in the order that I want and then go back in and like add little kind of like thematic and thematic connectors and things that can kind of resonate or like uh, be in tension with one another once it's in order. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so interesting. Um, do you need anything? Uh, what are your necessities around while you're writing? Coffee? Coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I really can write anywhere. Um, or I mean, like I just write on my laptop. So sometimes I sit on the couch. Sometimes I sit in a chair. Like I, I don't have a, a specific place that I'm really tied to. Um, I write on Scrivener, which I love. Um, so I, it, it, it sort of feels like I'm in that program no matter where I am locationally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, if I have my coffee and... I have my laptop. That's kind of all I need. I'm a quiet writer. Like I don't play music. So I don't love writing. I got all through grad school. I, I wrote in coffee shops and like with blasting music. There's some music. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm like, what are, what are these dogs barking outside my house? You know, I live in the middle of the city, so it's like not quiet. But yeah, that's all I need. <laughs> Okay. Do you set daily writing goals or, and do you have any advice for anyone that's an aspiring writer that's listening that is unsure of how to figure out what their daily writing goal should be? Yeah. Oh God. I love talking about this like super granular nerdy stuff. Um, You know, when I, when I'm, when I used to write, I didn't really set, or when I was writing self-published books, I didn't really set like a word count goal. I just, I just wrote and then it was done when it was done because I got to decide when it came out. Um, which to be honest is actually my preferred mode of doing it. I sometimes find that I get really fixated on hitting a goal. I'm, I'm like fairly OCD in a lot of ways and one of the things that is a problem for me when I'm when I'm writing is like if I write and I've hit the end of a scene and my word counter is at like 
10,896 words. I can't stop. I'm like, no, I have to add something to hit the round number. Mm. It's very, you know, so I'll like go back and do that. Mm -hmm. Or like I'll embroider an earlier scene to get the numbers to add up right. And then later I'll usually take it out because it didn't need to be there. But it's like, I can't, I can't not do it. Um, (laughs) So I don't actually love writing with word goals. But when I'm writing a traditionally published book and I have a deadline, what I like to do is um, I, I use, uh, what the hell is it called? Uh, Oh, pacemaker pacemaker.com. It's a free website. um, If you want to pop a link to it, it's amazing. Uh, It's like, it's a very simple tool, but it's exactly what I want. So you can put in your, the date that you're starting to write and the date that you need to be done writing. Mm-hmm. And then the number of words, or you can use it for like chapters or whatever you want to use it for the number of words. So say you like start on this date and you're going to end on this date and you want to write, your book is going to be a hundred thousand words long. Then you can click the button and it will tell you exactly how many words you need to write each day oh, wow. spread out over that period to hit your goal. Awesome. And then you can mess with it. So like I'm going on vacation next week. So I like can block out those mm-hmm. days. I don't write on the weekends. So I block out those days. Mm-hmm. And as you make those changes, it'll recalculate your number of words per day. And you can also make it like the same number of words a day, or say you want to do more on Mondays, you can do that. Or if you want to like hit it hard at the start, you can write more and then like less as the time goes through. So it's really set up like perfectly for however you want to track these things. Then at the end of the day, you write in how many words you actually wrote and it will recalculate the whole thing based on, so say I wrote like 50 words less than I needed to write or wanted to write, it'll amortize those 50 words out throughout the other days. So like then tomorrow it'll tell me I need to write two words more than I thought. Or if I write an extra 2000 words, it'll diminish the ones that anyway, you know how math works. Uh, Yeah. So I use that. And that's great for staying on track. I have no sense of time. I'm like the worst at time and dates ever. Um, And so if I don't do this, Mm -hmm. I have in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm about halfway through the book. And it's due at some point in the future, but I like can't keep those things in my brain. So it's a, yeah, this is a great way to like never miss the deadline, always stay on track and not have that thing happen where you're like, cool, my book's due in a week and I have 20,000 words left to write. Words, so yeah. I guess, <clears throat> yeah, which, you know, sometimes you still have to do that because you have to go back and change stuff. But this is like my attempt at um, keeping myself like as on track as I can be. That's uh, I'm attempting Camp NaNoWriMo in July for my first book. And I went on and I keyed in my word count that I did like on the first day and it pops up ever so helpfully. If you continue at this pace, you'll finish the book in 2023. (laughs) Like, thanks, NaNoWriMo. (laughs) Appreciate that. But I'll have to check out that website. It sounds amazing. It's great. And you can set it to, um, you can like, Anyway, you'll see there are a bunch of options to customize it. And I feel like it is um, exactly the kind of uh, tool that I always am like, why aren't there more free tools for authors? And then Mm -hmm. there it is. And it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about that and you did mention Scrivener. Is there anything else that you use for your writing? Um, Other than Google? (laughs) Yeah, lots of Google. I think that's pretty much it. Um, 
I mean, I, I unfortunately, once I'm in the editing process, have to use Microsoft Word track mm. changes, which oh. is my nemesis. Um, but yeah, it, uh, there was a, at the last RWA before the pandemic, the one in New York, I don't know if either of you were there, but um, it was my first RWA in person, actually. And I was sitting, standing around in the bar with a bunch of friends and we were talking about Scrivener, maybe something. And there was this group of guys next to us at the bar. And one of them came over and was like, hi, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I couldn't help it over here. And so, of course, immediately I was like, I hate you. Go away and die. How dare you? But then instead of being a horrible, <laughs> intrusive creep, he was like, I actually um, work for Microsoft Word in the track changes. Like, like he was in charge somehow of track changes. And okay. he was like, I yeah. hear that you're authors. Can I ask you some questions? And this poor guy, we roasted Microsoft Word <laughs> so hard. Oh, my God. He was just like, okay, do you use this functionality or what do you write on? And we all said Scrivener as one voice. And he's like, okay, do you ever draft in Microsoft Word? And we were like, no, never. <laughs> um, and when he was asking about if we used it, we were like, oh God, it's the worst thing ever because like that's what publishers use. So we have to use it, but it's mm -hmm. so horrible. And he was asking all these questions. And to his great credit, he really was like, listening and uh, yeah. seemed surprised by what we had to say, which made me kind of be like, so you've developed a product, but you didn't ask people how they use it or use what the it, problems yeah. were. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm still like hoping that someday there will be the um, the like 2023 new Microsoft track changes. And when they announce it, it'll be like, we heard from some authors that this <laughs> product wasn't working for blah, blah, blah. And like, maybe it'll actually be good someday. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get into some round out. No brainer but super fun questions because I cannot wait to hear mm -hmm. your answers for these. Okay. Okay. What is one book you wish you could read again for the first time? Okay. Here's my really unsatisfying answer to that question. I love rereading books. So I know the spirit of the question and I do love it, but my memory is so bad that I often forget things like, you read and I, yeah. yes. And I read so much. That, that sometimes like I don't actually even have to um, need to wish that I could read it for the first time. I could just go and like pick up a book that I have read before and be like, I remember that I really liked this. So yay. And then reread it and be like, I do not remember who the murderer was. I don't. So I'm like the worst, the worst, especially with mysteries. So I'm a huge Tana French fan. She's one of my favorite mystery mm -hmm. writers and she's so brilliant and I've read some of her books like three different times. Uh, and I will literally in my head say things like, ooh, that's suspicious. I wonder if that person's the killer. And then I'm like, you have read this twice before. You're not <laughs> clever for picking up on these little. <laughs> so I don't even um, need to like re erase my memory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt the same way when I reread and then there were none. And I'm like, yeah. I don't remember any of this. <laughs> brilliant <laughs> with, a, with a gun to my head i could not tell you who the murderer was in and then there were not same and, and i read it last year <laughs> um who was your teenage celebrity crush i had the biggest crush on ethan hawk okay we haven't heard ethan hawk mm. we haven't i've always loved the celebrity crushing i know <laughs> Especially yeah. when it's somebody that I actually know. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> Name one film you'll never stop watching. Practical Magic. <gasps> I 
I love we it. We love so witchy. Much. We love witchy stuff here on the podcast. A million <laughs> times better than the book. You know, and I love the book and I love the movie and they're so different. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you can really, I appreciate them both, but yeah, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. And there are things about the movie that are ridiculously silly, but I love it so much. Mm-hmm. It's mine and my sister. My sister is like my best friend and it's our sister movie. Like we watch mm-hmm. it and pretend that we are the Owen sisters. And we both have really enormous um, tattoos from the movie. Really? That, yeah. Like mine says magic and hers says practical, but then otherwise they're the same. So yeah, mm-hmm. practical magic. I will Perfect. watch anytime, anytime it's on or someone has it. I'm like, oh yes, I would love to spend the next two hours of my life that way. <laughs> what is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? Okay. For, for clarity, usually that means like a small petty thing, right? Not a big. It can like, be anything. Outlander, in your opinion, is a romance. Gone with the wind is it? Like it can be anything. The hill that I will die on, it's on purpose and by accident. (laughs) I know that colloquial language has changed and now people say on accident and it's a totally accepted thing. And I respect people's right to choose. But in my mind, every time someone says it, I'm like by accident. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Tough love. What's been one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever been given? It can be general life. It can be writer, whatever. Yeah. So this wasn't something that was like specifically given to me as advice. It was something that I heard on a podcast. Again, like the kind of the way that we absorb this advice. And it's honestly changed my life, but it was one of the hardest things to realize. So the the advice or the like uh, conviction was you are in charge of what you choose to think. And so if you're Mm -hmm. thinking something, you are making a choice. So if you're thinking negative thoughts about yourself, if you're thinking X, Y, or Z was really hard, so-and-so person was really unkind to me, all those things, that those thoughts are optional. And if you choose to live in them, you are making your own unhappiness. And I had so much resistance to that thought because I was like, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. There are things that are real. There's like, there is white supremacy and the patriarchy and misogyny and transphobia. And like, all these things are real. And I think that that initial resistance was that like, I wanted there to still be villains. And I think there are, and I, there are, those things are hundred percent real, but I think that this advice, I was sort of misunderstanding in that, like all of those things are real and true and horrible, but I am in charge of the thoughts that I think about them. So like, if Mm -hmm. someone is a horrible misogynist, that is just like true and fine, like whatever, I hate you. But I get to decide if I think, wow, every time I see this person, he ruins my day, or I hate him. Or if I want to think that inconsequential speck of humanity doesn't touch me at all. And I think that like, that thought has been such a mind shift for me as someone who is like a chronic overthinker, mm-hmm. a super, yeah. like an ex-academic nerd, uh, really into like processing and thoughts and all this stuff. It has been one of the hardest things to understand because I love like picking apart why do other people do these things and what what things led to me being the way I am. And I've always thought of those as like a big part of my personality. And so hearing the thought that like all of that shit is optional and that 
I don't actually have to understand why someone did the things that they did to me or behaved the way they did. All I have to do is decide that I don't want to think about that or decide that I choose like that person is not going to affect me as my thought uh, has been the hardest mind shift that I've experienced, but also has completely changed my life. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like I feel so seen. I mean, I've, I'm such a Scorpio through and very sensitive. And like Mm -hmm. you said, like overthinker, I want to rationalize everything. Let's put every, let's look at everything contextually. Mm -hmm. And it's taken a lot of, a lot of like redundant conversations with my therapist before I realized, like, like you said, I don't have to think about stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and when you get to that point where you're like, I'm not going to think about you. I'm not going to let what you just said affect me. It's like so powerful and freeing, but it takes a lot of time to get there, especially when you, somebody who's for so long has found such comfort mm-hmm. in like overthinking things. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It really does feel like stripping away a whole layer of your life and like the, what you see the world through. And I think it's amazing when, when people are able to actually do it. Like it's definitely a work in progress mm-hmm. for me. And I still find myself, um, having to, to like teach myself that over and over and over, especially in really reactive situations where it's like, you're in a situation with family that is a pattern that's existed since you were 10 years old. Um, or like something seems so true and not just a thought. Those are always the moments when Mm -hmm. it's hardest to be like, no, no, that sentence just came out of a person's mouth. That is true your thought about that sentence is entirely within your control and you don't actually get to blame your feelings on somebody else's words. At what point in your writing career did you realize your stories meant something to readers? I think that I relearn this every time someone reaches out to me and says something. <laughs> I I am such a, like a softie for it. I People email me and tell me that my books have meant something to them and I like full on cry. It's just, mm-hmm. it is like an amazing experience every single time it happens. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think when I first, so I told you that like, I was writing this book basically for my friend and didn't think my first book and didn't think that it was ever going to get published. So I didn't have that many thoughts about it. Like what it would actually be like to have it be in the world. I thought my mom and dad will buy 10 copies and think it's cool. My friends will (laughs) buy them. I did not think anyone else was going to read this book. And when people started reading it and started telling me things about it, my first response was like total shock. I couldn't believe that I had created something that was in the world that anybody cared about. And it really took a while. I kept thinking that like each one would be the last one. So if someone said something nice to me about it, I was like, oh my God, another person read my book, but probably nobody else ever will. You know, talk about like needing to manage your thoughts. Um, so I, I, I can't like, I can't pinpoint like an exact moment that it happened, but mm-hmm. it, um, it surprised me maybe for the first like two years after I had published my first book, every quarter I would expect that no one else would have bought it. So I wouldn't get any money. So I would have to go get another job. And every time I realized that people had bought it and I could keep writing, it felt like a whole, like a huge gift. Um, Mm -hmm. So it really was only in the last like 
three years maybe that I was like, oh no, it, it keeps happening that people buy the books and you can keep writing. So maybe stop thinking of this as like a provisional thing that's about to be taken away from you at any moment and start making longer term plans mm -hmm. and like investing in understanding the business of publishing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that's like not a cute answer. I wish I had like the one email that made me realize that yeah. my books had affected people, but I will say there was- Well, um, in your own way, you 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 get reminded of it yeah. quite often. So. I do, I every single time. And there was like, I think one thing that really, really stands out to me was the first time I ever did a book signing. Um, it was soon after my book Invitation to the Blues had come out which is a book about a character who has extreme depression and anxiety and has um, had like suicidal thoughts in the past. Um, and he struggles a lot throughout the book. And I, as someone who also has struggled with depression, I, it was like really a personal book for me. And at the signing, a very dear reader came up to me and her daughter was there as well. They're both super lovely and I've like interacted with them online um, since. And when her daughter like left my table, she turned to me and, and said, I want to thank you for writing Invitation to the Blues because it wasn't until reading it that I understood my daughter and like reading it has given me a new understanding of what she's going through. And I find it broke my heart to like understand some of what she's going through. But also I feel like now I am better equipped to support her and like waterworks I yeah it, it was one of the most meaningful things anyone's ever yeah. said to me and it was something that made me like wow. I was you know that was a really personal book for me and I thought it was like pretty heavy I thought maybe people wouldn't wouldn't like it or would think it was too much and it really like renewed my conviction that making art from a place of struggle is really important, not just for processing like my own stuff, but because people are reading that from a place of struggle as well. And that sometimes experiencing the world through someone else's lens makes you, a, I mean, I think always makes you a more empathetic, generous, caring person who's like better able to support people around you who are having different experiences than you. And that's the thing that I think I get as a reader anytime I read. And so it's like really the most important thing to me as an author too. Uh, 15 years from now, you're writing your memoir. What's the title? Oops, I did it again. There you go. Hashtag <laughs> <laughs> no, free Britney. <laughs> <laughs> now and then, knowing what you know now, what advice would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your writing career? Um. <clears throat> I think I would tell myself to dream big because I, you know, like I was just saying for the first few years, I, I really thought of like the chance to publish a book anytime anyone bought my book, any opportunity I got, they all surprised me. And I thought of them as like these amazing gifts, which they were. But I think what, what that prevented me from doing was having like a bigger plan or, or kind of imagining all the things that I could do. And I feel like I'm only now understanding that like, it wasn't, it isn't like a publisher says they're going to publish your book. And so you're beholden to them forever because they gave you a chance. It's like, no, you wrote a thing and someone else thinks they can make money off of it. So you are in charge. You have the power. It seems like they have the power, but actually you do. Um, and I think that like, that is a, a thing that most first time or even second time authors, like we are taught that it's, 
a gift that someone's giving us. We're taught that we're really lucky. We're taught that it's hard. And so if you can do it, you better be like really grateful. And of course I am grateful and it is a gift, but I think the piece that's missing from that, that I would want to tell myself and that I would want to tell anyone who's like working on a book for publication for the first time is like, don't sell short the fact that you are the product and no publisher is ever worth compromising your own ideas or ideals for no book deal is ever worth like writing something that you think is wrong or any of that. Like there will be more opportunities. If your book is good, if your work is good, there are always more opportunities. And the one thing you can't take back is like putting your power behind something that you don't believe in. Can you share what's coming up next for you? Coming up next for me is the lights on Knockbridge lane, which comes out in September And then after that is book four in the Garnet Run series, which features, maybe I just won't even tell anybody which characters it features, but I will say definitely read The Lights on Knockbridge Lane to get an idea. Um, And that is, speaking of my love of holidays, that is a Halloween book. (gasps) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. And I'm incredibly excited about it. I had so much fun writing it. It involves a Halloween decorating contest, prank, a prank war, chainsaw carving, weirdos falling in love, (laughs) uh, Halloween costumes, horror movies. It's just like Halloween explosion. I love it. Thank God. Oh my God. Halloween gets the shaft. (laughs) Romance tends to like, you get these great summer romances, but then it like goes right from like summer to Christmas. There's no, and I am a Halloween. I have Halloween decorations up all year round. (laughs) Me too. Because that's a thing. And (laughs) I I love this. I'm so excited. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Halloween is hands down my favorite holiday. I follow accounts on Instagram that are like Halloween 365. Yes, me too. I follow a person who just does a countdown to how many days is it to Halloween. I I think we're at like 90, 90 something right now. Get ready. Um, yeah, I love Halloween so much. And I, I, when I proposed this, they actually wanted me to change it to a Valentine's Day romance. Cause like, to like oh, no. have it be the same, but have it take place around Valentine's Day. And I was like, <laughs> so, so it's Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. And I'm super excited I love about it. it. And lastly, where can everyone follow you online? Oh my gosh, please, please come follow me online because. It is really so much more fun when people come talk to me. Um, I am at Rowan Parish. I think all the places, uh, Instagram, Twitter. I have a Facebook like author group Mm -hmm. called Parish or Parish that you should all come join that I give updates in. Um, And my new favorite platform is TikTok. I've gotten super into it. Uh, as a consumer, I, my, my video making, I'm still learning the platform. Um, but yeah, I'm Rowan Parish on TikTok. So you should come like send me fun, um, Halloween DIY cute cat <laughs> videos and well, ask me, okay, here's the thing that you should really do. I have my little Q and a thing open and I don't know what the hell anyone wants me to talk about on TikTok. So come ask me questions and like put me out of my misery of being like, is this a TikTok or a piece of garbage that I throw away forever? (laughs) Challenge accepted. I'm going to go on as soon as we get done and send you. (laughs) And then I have a website, roamparish.com where you can find all of my links to everything. You can order, sign, 
signed books directly from me, if that's mm. the kind of thing that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has all of the, uh, I have like a couple freebies, like extras that go in the middle of somewhere series that are up there. It's your portal. It's your hell mouth to everything me. Well, this has been such an oh honor. Gosh, Thank yes. you for oh. starting your day with us and letting us start yes. our day with you. It was um, a total and utter delight. And I had so much fun talking to you both. And you. sorry for being like the world's biggest chatterbox. No, you're <laughs> It's your show. We were just here to ask questions. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, so <laughs> listeners, make sure you check the show notes. Links to all of Rowan's stuff will be listed down below, as well as the letter for Dear Romance Writer, the podcast where she's a co-host. So make sure you check that out. And Sarah and I will talk to you in our next episode. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.